0: hello everyone and welcome to stem froms podcast where does your journey stem from hosted by myself dr Karina minardi today we are joined by Andy who is currently a co-founder and CEO of a health tech company in New York City let's welcome to the stage Andy
1: hey how's it going karina how are you
0: I'm doing well Andy thanks for joining me and excited to have you
1: yeah excited to be here thanks
0: Andy is the co-founder and CEO of a health tech company currently operating in Stealth. Prior Andy was a PhD candidate in biomedical engineering at Columbia University where his research focused on ways to improve osteoarthritis related knee surgeries. He is a published scientific author, award-winning inventor, and engineer passionate about democratizing access to quality healthcare. He holds a master's in biomedical engineering from Columbia and a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from New York University. So let's start off the podcast, Andy, with you telling us a little bit, not only about your background, but also about yourself from a personal standpoint.
1: Yeah, so I guess we could uh, take it back to the beginning. Right. (laughs) So when I was a kid, um, you know, I never thought that I would go on to be an engineer. Uh, It was always a doctor, lawyer. Uh, those are those are the big ones that I was supposed to go to, um, and then was really poised to be a, a big disappointment to the family in being a pilot. Uh, so I wasn't going to be a doctor or an engineer, but uh, sadly, uh, you know, I'm not. Su- you know, I've got I've got glasses, so I uh, I wasn't able to do that. Um, figured out I was pretty good at math and science, and so really in a very uninspiring way, decided to be an engineer uh, just because I was good at math and science, and that's really it. Um, but along the way, I kind of found out. Uh, what I'm into, um, and I really uh, kind of like explored and, and did a whole bunch of projects, and found that I really like the application of engineering and healthcare to solve uh, kind of the country's biggest problems. And so, um, I come from a pretty low income background, uh, and so I'm like not a very typical person in engineering school. I got in, uh, you know, on a great affirmative action program at NYU, and 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 had a fantastic opportunity to start, um, and really just tried to to roll with that. And so, really, for me. Um, like issues with access to healthcare are are pretty big, you know, especially in our country that is like, you know, super expensive, all that stuff, tons of barriers. Uh, So really just making it easier for people to get care um, and making that care accessible to everybody, right? Like making good care accessible. So uh, that's really what I've focused my whole kind of academic career on. Um, And as a part of that, you know, I was really passionate about going on to grad school and and kind of investigating um, or or, or really diving deep into one of these issues. Uh, It just so happened that I happened to, I mean, my whole career, you're going to find out as we as we talk more about it. It's just been very, um, like happened up, you know, that that I would like end up in in, in an opportunity and and kind of roll with it and take it from there and see see what happens. So, um, yeah, it just happened into into knee research. Uh, it made sense with what I was doing, um, you know, with some of the skills uh, that that I'd gotten uh, as a mechanical engineer, and then from there, um, just started doing research and and as a part of the research. Um, I came up with uh, what I thought was a pretty good idea, um, and it, it started picking up some traction. Uh, and then it was a pretty good time for me to to go full time. So really, pretty recently, you guys are hearing this, you know, <laughs> pretty early, the first ones to hear it. About a month ago, dropped out, um, so that way I can go full time. So it's really uh, exciting time, and, and really gotten a good breadth of everything that you could do as a as a STEM person, pretty much.
0: <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the the mission as well, because that's exactly. Um, why I went into healthcare was exactly that's to help with the barriers um, and access to high quality care and work on the quality of care for sure. Um, how did you get introduced to STEM for your background?
1: Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think a lot of engineers have a very similar origin story. Um, I was, uh, I was a kid and uh, my dad had found an old Nintendo 64 that was not working. Um, and I was really intent on playing Super Mario like the original one and so I just hopped on a bunch of YouTube videos and tried to figure out how to take it apart and put it back together and fix it and just looking at the videos it made sense and I was able to get it to work and I was like oh maybe this is like a thing that I'm into and so <laughs> it just kind of went from there and that's really the the introduction into STEM like my uh my family is very blue-collar workers my dad was a paramedic um, and my mom was a police officer and so there was really no engineers in our family to like you know, look up to or, or, or really to aspire to 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 really do. Um so it's just very like much my own curiosity with how things worked and trying to figure it out. Um, and and that was it. And so I just kinda happened upon it and went through. And then again the good good at math and science thing made sense when my guidance counselor was like, okay, you have to pick a major before you apply. Um so then it just it just kind of made sense from there.
0: There's this um, interesting um I think phrase that I like to use is embrace the randomness, um which I think you kind of alluded to in your introduction. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the random circumstances that have introduced themselves to you and how you have approached them?
1: Oh, man. yeah, I mean, almost everything that I've done has been completely random, right place, right time. So a lot of people will say, like, oh, you know, I'm such a driven person, and this is why I went out there and I got it. But really, it's just, it's luck. (laughs) You just have to be right place, right time. Um, But what you can work on is your ability to find when that, you know, situation or instance is actually occurring, like when that random thing uh, is presented in front of you, uh, and then being able to execute and kind of act on it. And so really, the the first one was my admission to NYU. Absolutely. Such a long shot. I still, I can't believe, based on what I, maybe one day in the future, you know, somebody will leak it. But uh, my admissions essay initially to NYU was, was the worst piece of writing I've ever put together. Um, somehow I got in, um, and then so I think realizing that, like, instead of it, like I had a really great opportunity to have big imposter syndrome, like, oh man, I didn't I didn't deserve to get in there. But I kind of took a very opposite approach instead of being like, oh man, I shouldn't be here, and be like, I don't know why the heck they chose me, but I need to kind of make them proud, right? And I don't want them to look bad. So um, just really that that was pretty pretty much the first one, and then really just. Kind of happening on uh, on projects that worked really well, so we could probably talk a little bit about it later. But really, the big project that kind of like inspired my work in healthcare um, was I found this really great mentor, um, really great professor, and uh, some great grad students who were working on um, an issue uh, in health tech, which was uh, I'll just give a brief summary um, that, that that it was uh, you know, a you know low income people with a cerebral palsy when they're developing they don't have access to the braces that they need. Um, to to develop, right? Um, And so they'll go on uh, their whole lives without access to care. And so we're trying to figure out how can we actually get these people in a very low cost, kind of like scrappy way, access to this rehab. So, you know, something is better than nothing. That was the idea. And we ended up coming up with something that was pretty good, Uh, not just decent enough, but good. And it was fun. And that's really kind of where it blew up. But really, the moment when you realize that you're in a, a situation or a place with people that are smarter than you, That are driven that are working on something with big impact and and that's exciting uh, i think that that's a a, you know another really big one for me so um probably those two were were the biggest inflection points throughout my career um and then yeah just recognizing acting on it and then uh, getting excited it's really easy to tell when that is is when you yourself are really excited about it right if you have to rely on other people to tell you about how great it is or something like that and you're not just you don't just immediately see it it's not a right fit for you and that's not probably the, the the opportunity
0: no, that's, that's wonderful. And I think that's so apropos um, in in embracing really the, the randomness to your point. Um, thank you for those examples. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about some goals and aspirations that you have from a long-term perspective, not only in career, but also in, in personal growth?
1: Oh, man, this isn't going to be a good answer because I don't really have goals. <laughs> Very much in the embracing the randomness here. I never really set like hard goals. Sure. I'll I'll set like an abstract idea, right? You always want to have something to shoot for. Um, So, you know, I want to be able to, in a very general sense, um, kind of help people get access to healthcare, right? I really, the the thing that I'm getting at is that I'd like to help people. I like to feel useful. Um, I like to feel like I'm adding value. Uh, And so that's all I want to do is find something that I can add value, whether it's personally with friends, family, relationship, or professionally you know in terms of like a a business a service a product or uh, whatever it is or or my output in research when i was a you know a phd student it's really just do good and help people and that's my goal to set really concrete goals it um, it gives you an opportunity to be very disappointed if you don't reach those goals Um, and then also makes it very easy to stop being motivated if you quickly achieve those goals and then you just kind of have to keep moving the goalposts so if you keep that abstract idea i i think that that's really been helpful for me to kind of keep moving forward and and, and be successful as long as i i have been
0: no i think a key theme to this um, episode will be transparency and i think that yeah, your transparency and and that is is appreciative i mean you don't necessarily have to have you know goals you can have mission driven goals and then have align your activities to to that you know how did you make that dec- determination decision what was your area of research and then we can obviously get to the the flip side of that right
1: yeah so i mean i guess this is actually a pretty good example um great questioning <laughs> that um to, to kind of follow up on the last point is that uh when i was graduating i mean one thing it was the middle of the pandemic i graduated in 2020 so we did like the whole virtual uh, graduation ceremony all that stuff um but i was in a really interesting position where i had gotten a really competitive job offer that was that was really nice um it definitely would have been by far the most uh, anybody in my family had made ever. <laughs> so it was really exciting. We all threw a huge party for that. Uh, and then I'd also gotten into grad school uh, to continue like biomedical engineering work. There was one uh, you know person in particular that I was really excited to work with. who took a really good both entrepreneurial research and kind of like academic focus to things that I really liked and I really thought would be a good bridge for me. Um, and I was faced with a really tough choice to uh, be a sellout. And there's no nothing wrong if you want to sell out. Um, but you know, to 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 be a sellout and and really just m- more so do something that didn't align with that, you know, do good and help people. It would help a very specific group of people make a lot of money consulting. Um, but that was really all it would do is is just make money, not so much generate value. Um, and so I tried to kind of decide and wait. It was really tough. It, it was like a lot of stressful nights um to to kind of labor over the decision, but I ended, you know, I ended up going with grad school. Um and so uh, I, I went with that, and when I was there, it was a weird kind of mix of like hybrid, in-person, not really virtual. And so, like, I've, I felt like I really missed out on a lot of the, the the kind of the benefit of doing grad school, right? Or really any school. Like, you, sure, you, you pay for the name and you pay for the quality of instruction and all that. But what you're really paying for is to be within a group of people um, who are all really driven, who have very similar goals uh, and ideas, and who are going to go on to do really great things. And so, to kind of bounce ideas off of each other that's really the benefit of going to college. It's less so the, the degree and the actual information, um, but really being in that kind of environment. And so I felt I hadn't, I didn't get that the way that I wanted to um, in my, my one-year program. Um, and then so I was just, a, I had taken a class with a professor uh, on tissue engineering, uh, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I thought it was just so, so interesting. Uh, and it was really great because it was a hybrid class and I was like the only person in person. So it was just pretty much just one-on-one session with like the professor where, you know, he was lecturing to a virtual class and I was the only uh, nerd actually there in person to like raise my hand and and engage with him. So it was good. We had a really solid relationship that semester and I was just walking with him one day and I was like, hey, do you need a PhD student? Well, really, I asked if he wanted a master's student. He said, no, um, because I'm not going to train you for you to leave soon. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll be a PhD student. And then he said, yeah, I guess I'll take you then. (laughs) So that that was really the whole negotiation to getting into the PhD. It was just like, can you take me now? Okay, and then what about a PhD? And sure, okay, it's very again in the right place at the right time, and that's kind of how I ended up um, in the PhD. Uh, it also had a really nice benefit that it's funded at Columbia, so uh, I got a huge discount on my last couple classes for the master, so that was also a nice little perk, um, and it just made sense. And then I got into it and, and started doing research, and so he he has a really strong focus this particular professor on um, cartilage tissue engineering, so growing your cartilage um, to one day instead of getting a knee replacement, you know, we can take your stem cells and grow your actual knee Uh, it just so happens that cartilage is a really interesting tissue in the body that is very mechanical and driven by physics more so than a lot of other tissues in the body so um, me having uh, no bio experience in the past wasn't really a big issue Um, and so then it it just like kind of made sense it was like the perfect marriage of like do good you know work in healthcare, help people get access to care and then also like with like a very technical physics-driven building kind of background, how can I apply that into medicine? So it, it was really like, again, perfect storm of randomness to come together and, and make have it make sense.
0: So can you talk a little bit about the research that you conducted then on the cartilage tissue? Um, what was your analysis like? What was your hypothesis? Can you give us a little bit more um, line of sight to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, it was all like really early stage stuff. Uh, I was like still like a pretty young, PhD student by the time I had left, so I didn't really get into the nitty gritty of like one very specific project, but I bounced around a couple things. Um, So it's really anything from like developing a new way to culture cells for this other lab member who needs a very specific process for their experiment to um, designing like new ways to create the gels that we embed the cells in to actually create the tissue, right? Because you can't just have cells floating around, they need to be in something to actually produce the tissue. So like, you have to embed them and, and things like that. And so developing new processes for that. Um, but it, in particular, uh, my research was starting to to take the form around um, improving the knee surgeries themselves. And so um, in the meantime, while we're still developing, you know, these, these tissue engineered and, and grown cartilage samples, um, they're still not there. I think they're pretty far in the future. I think the, I might see it right at the end of my lifetime if I'm lucky in, in terms of like it getting FDA approved and being a real thing. Um, but in the meantime, I was like, how can I actually do something that's going to have an impact um, within my life that I don't have to you know, live two lifetimes to actually see? Um, and so there's a surgery that they're doing in between um, where they're taking graft tissue from donors, right? And so they're taking um, somebody who passes away and donates their tissue. They can you know, take a plug out, store it. Uh, and then, when somebody needs it, they put it into their knee. Uh, and it does a pretty good job. Uh, it gets the job done, certainly. It's definitely it could be better. Um, and so really what what goes on is that when you're doing these surgeries, um, you're causing a lot of injury to the actual cells around that make up the tissue. And so a cell's job in this tissue is is to maintain the tissue. And so what that means is that it's producing everything that makes cartilage cartilage, right? So if you've got these cells dying and now you're you know introducing, Um, this graft that now needs to heal and you've got a bunch of dead cells, it's not going to heal right. It's not going to integrate the way that it should. Um, And really not a lot of people had taken a very cell specific approach to looking at this. And so we were diving really deep into figuring out what are the cellular mechanisms behind death in these surgeries? And then what are ways that we can um, mitigate that either chemically or with the actual surgical technique or some other uh, medium, maybe in, in terms of like storage between Um, the actual harvesting of the graft and implanting. Um, And it was really just like a very comprehensive look at how we can uh, limit the cell death. And hopefully, uh, therefore, with the idea being if we could limit initial cell death, we'd get better integration and better repair.
0: The aspect that I really enjoy, however, when you're speaking to this is the amalgamation of engineering and the capabilities of the engineering plus cellular processes, what is actually happening within the body at a a molecular um, cellular level and then also how do you actually intertwine that into the greater healthcare expanse of saying you know the actual surgeries um and that's i think that's a it's a beautiful amalgamation of those three the trifecta of that
1: yeah that's the the most important thing really for for really research engineering anything that you want to solve a hard problem um they're hard for a reason it's because they got a lot of moving parts and so sure you can make a great solution but if it's not economically viable, it's not going to work. Or if it's really easy, but it doesn't actually get the job done, nobody's going to adopt. And so there's a lot of moving parts. Um, and what's really great about a STEM education is that it teaches you a framework for thinking about problems like this, very difficult problems, how to break it down. What are all the parts that need to move in unison to make it happen and make it successful? And then how do we actually break down each one of those and then solve those problems to make them viable, right? And so really a, a framework to break down all that stuff is really the value of a STEM education. That's why everybody wants to hire an engineer nowadays is because they're taught this framework of thinking that it's applicable to literally everything, literally any kind of um, job or opportunity or occupation um, can benefit from that, that framework and that style of thinking.
0: I like that because there's a high degree of translatable skills and problem solving approach. There's also what I have found to be um in that environment of collaboration. I mean, you're gonna you have to be collaborating with engineers, fellow engineers, fellow biologists, um, health economists, um, you know, corporate to think about the economics beyond that of, you know, how do you actually incorporate that into the business of healthcare? Um, and so how do you collaborate with those individuals?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And and this even goes back to early human times, right? Like Sure, humans are the apex predators, you know, we're the top of the food chain, but no single human is really top of the food chain. It's groups of humans are on top of the food chain, right? If you got transported back and you're sitting there with a lion, like you're probably not going to come out alive. But if you've got a group of people facing up with, with these these animals or these apex predators, we come out on top. And so that's really the same thing with, with everything. If you can take that in a framework, figure out how to collaborate and work together as a group um, and and kind of achieve something, it, it's very very powerful skill to be able to to do. And so like when you're going in college and, and grad school, like the most important thing that you're doing again, is that that environment about, you know, being around a lot of other smart people. Cause if you can figure out a way to get in there um, and work all together, you can actually achieve some pretty pretty big things and, and it's really necessary. And so there's a reason, you know, why everything is compartmentalized. Uh, and if you look at any company or person that was really widely successful, they all have had to have uh, some way to get every part of that kind of process to align and move in the right direction.
0: I I use this phrase commonly is that you're never the smartest person in the room. Um, and I always try to embrace that as well, um, in addition to the randomness, obviously. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, keeping with the theme of transparency in this podcast episode. Um, around you don't necessarily have to have a phd in order to be successful so can you tell us a little bit about your decision to leave why and how um and the what
1: yeah it's a a very difficult decision to make especially um you know as someone whose family has never been in academia before it's very uh education 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 and then like you know it's doctor lawyer engineer I had a great opportunity to do a two-for-one special and be a doctor and an engineer at the same time. So you could imagine they were very excited, my parents. Um, But uh, you really have to kind of evaluate and and think about what you're doing at every role. And so every role that you have, whether it's as a student or working a job or anything like that, you have to balance two things. You should either be learning or you should be earning. And so if you don't earn, you sure as heck better be uh, learning. Uh, and if you're not learning you better be earning but if you come to a point where you're doing neither um it's probably time for you to change roles and so i had to come up to a very kind of tough decision um mostly because there's a lot of social pressure um around dropping out of school uh, and then a lot of social clout that comes with being a phd student especially at an ivy league university it's like wow how could you possibly turn up this opportunity like so many people want this and you're in a great spot to do it like, how could you be so selfish and say, I don't want to do that, or squander such an opportunity? But um, if it's not working for you, you're probably going to be a lot more successful somewhere else. Um, and so really, um, it, it came to a point where, like, in the PhD, uh, and, and this isn't to, to bash PhD programs in general, but, um, you know, the first couple of years, typically, you'll be taking classes and learning and then doing some research. Uh, and then suddenly you hit an inflection point in your program, and that's when you become a PhD candidate. So it's after you've done your qualifying exam um, and you usually have a couple of other requirements, you finished up TAing, all of that. Now you're effectively just an employee, right? You're just you're just doing research, you're publishing uh, and you're producing value for the school, right? But you're still treated like a student, you know, they administratively keep you, you know, as a student and it's great, you can take classes and stuff. and sure it's fantastic. Um, but you very quickly stop learning and they very quickly translate you into like this, this employee role where you're not getting a pay increase and you're not learning much more. And it's very much just do the same thing, grind, you know, produce the research and output. And so, um, for me, I reached a plateau point. Some people don't reach that plateau. Some people continue to, to earn, you know, to, to learn. Um, and that's fine. And that's great. Um, and actually that's what it's supposed to be. Um, but in my particular program, I, I I wasn't experiencing that. And so it just made sense for me to kind of move on and do something else. Uh, and then very luckily I had uh, a decent idea kind of sitting in the back burner. Um, and a friend was like, "Why don't you just pursue this?" And I was like, All right, "I guess I'll, I guess I'll do it." Um, and then we started getting some traction, and people liked it. And then I was like, "Okay, this is the perfect storm." Then um, to to put a, a kind of like a, a close on the on the PhD.
0: I think there's there's value in recognizing. So I had a very sim, not a very similar, but I had a similar sort of circumstance to you in which I, I don't think that I talk to a single person in my program, other programs who did not the thought didn't cross their mind of, mm-hmm. of leaving and moving on and, and your your consideration of saying learning versus earning is is definitely apropos. Um, yeah. If yeah. you were to give guidance to you know a current PhD student I mean what would you other other than saying learning and earning what, what would you tell them?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the thing that's going to be the most important to be successful, I, if you're already in the PhD program um, and you've already got your PI, that's great. Hopefully that you really like both the work and them and their management style. Cause it's very, very critical because uh, this is the person that's going to be working with you closely. And if you end up having a bad relationship with them, um, they're going to be your only professional reference for like six years. So <laughs> it's not going to look great when you get out. Um, and so uh, hopefully you found somebody that you can work with. Uh, if you haven't, my advice is to try to find somebody that you do work better with. It's really tough and scary, um, and you're nervous that it looks bad, and you know you really you kind of get in this mindset. It's very easy to be like, "I need them more than they need me." But it's really the opposite way, right? These universities and schools are only strong because they can attract the biggest students. but it's like this interesting kind of like uh, momentum. Once you start being a base school, you start attracting students and then they can they can pick whoever they want. But really fall into that that kind of trap of thing like that, but you have to kind of be strong and have conviction uh, in what you want to do and, and, and kind of go from there. And so just don't be afraid and just do it, you know, where's that happens. You know, if you're a PhD student, you're already a smart person. So you're probably going to be pretty employable anyways. So I think you'll always be fine as a PhD student. Um, but if you're starting out and you're trying to find somebody again, the most important thing is the relationship and and kind of, um, culture of a lab. Um, and so whether you need to be more closely managed, you want to be like, you know, so I like to be micromanaged even. I like to be shown exactly what you want me to do um, so that way I can do it, right? Um, and then after that, you know, I can go from there. But if you want more hands off, again, you have to really, really try to understand that. Um, and you can talk to PhD students about it um, and things like that. But really just to to be sure that what you're doing um, and if you're, you're, your motivations are right as well. Because I, I think a lot of people, it becomes really easy to uh, get jaded with the research that you're doing. Once you start doing uh, an experiment like three or four times and it's not working every single time, it's very easy to be like, this is this is crap. It's not gonna work. Um, what am I doing in my life and then spiraling out? So one is gonna be like your network of friends. Um, so it's really key to make friends in your program that aren't just in your lab uh, and are in other PhD programs, other departments entirely. So that way you guys aren't like competing with each other. Um, and so you guys can be really candid. Um, And again, be transparent with each other because you're not always in an environment where you can be transparent with everybody. Um, And then, yeah, and just trying to recognize and be motivated for the right reasons. Because again, when you're doing that and you don't have that support, it's really easy then to just fall into be like, okay, well, I should just be finished just so I can be a doctor and that's that, right? And then once you start doing a PhD just to have people call you doctor, uh, that's not a good reason to do a PhD. um, And it's going to be very easy to to lose track. Um, And so then you should probably kind of consider something else.
0: Words of wisdom. No, I, I I appreciate that. And I think the support system is is um, critical, too, not only familially, but also, you know, um, collegiately um, and, and personally, too. You know, having that sort of alternative perspective is very, very helpful. Yeah, so can we talk a little bit about what you're doing now? What does your day-to-day look like?
1: yeah oh man day to day is insane now <laughs> this is uh this is definitely the most I've ever worked in my life um, but it's good because it's it, it's very fun um it's very exciting um and i I have ownership over it you know you're actually doing something that you own instead of it being for somebody else so it, it, it's a lot more motivating um but yeah so in the day to day we are still still like a pre-product so we're we've got some beta prototypes and stuff like that that we're testing out so really uh, my day-to-day is, one, managing the team and making sure that we are um, building a product that is aligned with all of the kind of interviews and research that we've done about what we actually need to make, um, and then hopping on calls, so I'm doing a lot of the sales, and in terms of, like, by sales, I really mean just doing, like, a customer outreach, and so we're generating a wait list and some buzz and excitement and people who are willing to be early adopters and give us, like, really good feedback, because... Uh, if you're going out to start a company, really the the first people that you should be targeting are going to be those, like, I think they call them like alpha users or something like that. I'm not very in tune with a lot of the jargon. I'm very much an outsider in the world of startups, um, but it's like, you no know, super users or ultra users, something like that. Um, but it's the person who's like really into your product and loves it and wants to tell you about what they want to see and what they hate and what they don't like. And so really nailing in on those people. So uh, my day to day is interacting with those people and making sure that we're building the right product for them as well. Um, and then we're in the middle of our first fundraise. So it's also a lot of networking and talking to investors, refining our pitch, refining our business approach, trying to decide, you know, strategy, work out details, quotes, financial projections, really like everything that can go into a business. And and then at the same time, uh, learning what I don't know, because very much, again, uh, outsider in this. And so I have just kind of happened into it. Um, and so you have to learn what you don't know and then implement immediately. So it's like, uh, you have to pick it, you know, thankfully I'm, i I take a very PhD approach to it so I can do like my little focus groups and testing experiments and very methodical about it. So that way I'm not making big disclosures or any big mistakes. Hopefully not. We'll see if my, <laughs> if the scientific method holds up, but, um, but yeah, so taking like a very regimented approach to kind of managing, just really doing just about everything, like Marketing, fundraising, sales, product—all that stuff, just all into one, uh, nonstop. So it's really just like wake up, fired up in the mornings, and then work until you can't keep your eyes open, and then do it all over again.
0: Sounds similar to a PhD. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very similar.
1: Hours are very similar. Absolutely, there's always everything needs to have been done yesterday, and there's tons of stuff to do.
0: And I think your your point around. Um, but what I really enjoyed about working at a startup too was the utility player, um, and sometimes you're like that in a laboratory, and sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're the subject matter expert, and you have your little lane, and that's where you stay. Um, and other other times, you either collaborate with people who know more than you, or um, you have to go out and learn it yourself. Um, and
1: yes, absolutely, that's Google's your part friend. of the fun.
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> Is yeah, a
1: everything internet. you can find uh, the sum of all human knowledge on the internet. So definitely use it as a resource.
0: So, uh, our time is wrapping up here, but I think you already talked a little bit about words of wisdom, but I think from an all inclusive sort of standpoint, if you were to reflect back on yourself, say 10 years ago, what, you know, wisdom or words of encouragement would you have imparted on yourself then? Um, given hindsight
1: is twenty twenty. Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'd probably go with, um, I mean, and this is, I'm not the first person to say this, this is going to sound kind of cliche, but really like the only things that people regret are the things that they didn't do and never really the things that they did do. Sure, like you do something embarrassing or whatever you think about it, but that's not really that bad. What's What people regret way more is like the missed potential of an opportunity or something. And so things that keep me up at night are things that I didn't do because of whatever reason I was afraid it didn't line up. I was worried about what somebody else wanted to do. Um, and so really making decisions for yourself and capitalizing on every opportunity. So, right. So you get lucky if you're lucky, you get lucky multiple, multiple times. Um, and then if you don't capitalize on every single one, you're only going to be regretting the things that you didn't capitalize on. So definitely do everything, figure out what works for you and then never say no to an opportunity.
0: Never say never, never say no. I like yeah. it.
1: Very like Jim Carrey, yes man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I'd go that far. Uh, yeah. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Andy, it's been a pleasure to get to know sort of your story, um, your past research experience, and then um, I am excited about learning more about your current endeavor and seeing you in um, the news and watching you close Series A through. All of the letters of the alphabet.
1: Yeah, that would be um, fantastic. Hopefully, we can uh, we can go public with some of the info uh, soon. But yeah, very. Yeah, yeah. And please to, um, keep us updated. Yeah, we'll do absolutely. Thank you so much for for having me and, and you know wanting to chat with me and this was great. So hopefully, some people are inspired for to you know to go to STEM programs and uh, drop out of their PhDs. Um, <laughs> you don't have to drop out of your PhD, but you know hopefully we inspire some some STEM uh, STEM folks
0: inspiration is what our mission is here. So again, thank you, Andy, for your time. And thank you to all of our listeners. And always remember asking yourself, where does your journey stem from? Bye.